Hey dog people of the internet, welcome to Cog Dog Radio, a podcast all about dog sports, behavior, and training. I'm your host, Sarah Stremming of the Cognitive Canine, and I can't wait to share my behavior cases, training revelations, and general geekery with you. Let's get started. I talk all the time about high arousal dogs, dogs that are spicy, sparky. They're a little too much. They're my favorite. But also, I have a special place in my heart for dogs that are on the other end of the spectrum, dogs that kind of retreat inside themselves or shut down in response to the stressors of the world. And I'm going to talk about those dogs today. They, generally speaking, fall under kind of one of four categories. And when I teach my course on this hidden potential, the gold students, I can usually divide into one of these categories. One of them is low ease of motivation. So basically this dog just didn't come out of the womb attached to a tug toy. They aren't super sure that playing with toys is a good idea. They might appreciate food, but it's easy for you to turn them off food if you ask for too much. Essentially, their work is expensive. You got to pay big for it. And not everybody knows how to do that. And if you show up to the table with a certain experience, a certain amount, of reinforcement that you're used to giving or a certain type of reinforcement you're used to giving, and this dog ain't buying it, that stuff isn't working for this dog, then they might fall into this kind of low ease of motivation category. The next category is kind of just high stress or mentally unwell. So the dog's mentally unwell, meaning they live with really high levels of anxiety. They have a phobia about something that they have to face on a regular basis, and they have a fear of something that happens to come with your chosen sport, like they're afraid of other dogs, but you'd like them to do agility, which happens to be a dog-heavy environment, or like they're afraid of loud noises, same thing, agility is loud, then they might fall under this kind of mentally unwell or unsuited for the environment category. The next one is dogs that are physically unwell. This is more common than anybody realizes that I've spoken to thus far. So, so often low food drive, and I put that in quotations, is actually an illness. It doesn't have to be an illness that is like a capital letters neon sign illness like cancer. It can be the dog has a mild food intolerance and they just feel kind of yucky because of it. It could be that the dog has kind of low level irritable bowel disease and it hasn't yet reached a point that anybody's paid much attention to it. It could just be the dog has acid reflux and you have no idea that they have acid reflux because they don't look like they have any symptoms other than they don't want to eat breakfast. So physically unwell happens a ton. I have helped my students arrive at diagnoses through this class with their veterinary team way more than I would expect, way more than I want to. It happens about every class. So every time I run this course, I've got one or two gold students that the dogs are sick and haven't been diagnosed yet. So if you feel like your dog just kind of doesn't want to do stuff, maybe your dog doesn't feel good and it might be something to pursue. Things that 
have been figured out through this class. And again, I'm not making any diagnoses. I'm guiding people towards back towards their veterinary team. We've diagnosed um, pancreatic insufficiency, cancer, hip dysplasia, hypothyroid, IBD, all just in this class. And just me saying, hey, I think you want to talk to your vet about this. And then maybe, hey, this is the kind of specialist I might look for. I don't tell anybody how to treat or what to do. But so often people just need like a guide and a person to hold their hand to get to that right diagnosis. And then finally, the fourth category is that there's just a mismatch. This dog is not built for the sport that you want them to do in, you know, one way or another. Maybe the dog finds jumping physically kind of difficult and you want them to do agility. Maybe the dog is just sort of low stamina as an individual and you want them to do some high stamina sport like competitive obedience. Sometimes too, there's a mismatch with just the type of trainer and the type of dog. I know what kind of dog I like. And I think that getting real about what kind of dog we like and what kind of dog we like to be around and train is something that we're smart to do. So if these are the categories, we've got kind of low ease of motivation, high stress, or kind of just mentally unwell, physically unwell, or we've got a mismatch going on. And sometimes it's a mismatch in type, but sometimes it's a mismatch in skill. Maybe this dog requires a different level of skill than the one that you're bringing to the table. How do we get through it? Well, I provide a lot of different exercises for people to work through. Some of it is just talking and thinking points. We do a lot of conversation and kind of philosophical discussion in this class, because if you are mismatched, like if you want to do agility and your dog really doesn't, and your dog is okay physically and mentally, he just kind of thinks your game is dumb. That is a really tough pill to swallow. It's something that we talk about in the class. A tough pill to swallow equally is that your dog is afraid, is too afraid of the things that you are asking the dog to face for your own gain. And it can be a tough conversation too. But one of my favorite things I get to do in the class is just help people up their skill level. And then I have hacks in the class to help the dog hang out with you while you up your skill level. Because when it comes down to it, your skill is probably the thing you have the most control over in your dog training kind of path. So if you're not getting the results that you want, I think it's normal for us to say, well, there's something wrong with this dog. Let's figure it out. But the dogs that are in these categories, they're not not going to be in those categories. They're going to stay in those categories. You are going to hopefully go from low skill to high skill. So you go from the low skill category or maybe just a different skill set category to a new skill set or higher skill set category. Now we're really talking because now your skills can be applied to help your dog with low ease of motivation, perhaps do the thing or to help your dog who is mentally unwell, be mentally well because you are helping them cope better with their environment, et cetera, et cetera. I will bring in the example of, I've had border collies for 20 years, my uh, over 20 years now. And my first border collie would, would be one of these dogs. He was physically not super well. He was definitely mentally unwell and he had low ease of motivation. I think because of all the stress that he was under, if I had him to do over again, which please don't send him to me to do over again. But if I did, I like to think that I would be better equipped to help him today. I have the skills today that I think he could have been a different dog. And yet 
I now have had a couple other border collies who were, you know, different levels of ease of motivation, different, different levels of wellness. But what hasn't been hard for me with border collies past my first one is that motivation piece. They tend to want to do this stuff, working, moving their body, moving their brain is cheap for them. In fact, it's desirable for them. So you can pay them not very much and they will give you a whole, whole lot. And I do tend to pay my dogs a whole lot. And so I tend not to have huge problems in this area. Fast forward after 23 or four years of Border Collies, I got Rhea, who is my Icelandic sheepdog, which is an ancient Spitz breed and certainly nothing like a Border Collie. <laughs> and she is so wonderful and fun and I adore her. And all of my skills in the kind of interest of building her desire to do the things that I want her to desire to do have been put to the test. And I have to say, it's going really well. I've been successful so far. I'm really going at her pace and her speed. And I'm only asking for what she can give me on a 100% level and nothing more. And she loves training so far and loves playing my games so far. And is honestly a well-trained, nice nice little dog who I have not found difficult to train, who I may have found difficult to train if I were still training agility the way that I trained Iggy agility, my second border collie. And the way I trained Iggy agility is kind of the way that the cultural masses at large are training agility. So that leads me to some of the common themes that show up in this class. One of them being just trying to clear that cultural fog out of the air. So if you believe that only dogs that play tug are fast, we got to get rid of that fog out of your head. Of course not. That's not true. If you believe that you want to incite high levels of frustration in order to teach, we got to get rid of that fog. If you believe that you need to correct your dog or tell your dog that they've made an error, we got to get rid of that fog because as we're teaching our dogs and as we are increasing our skill level, we really need to provide them the just safety net of reinforcement. So it's kind of like if you're learning, if I'm learning how to teach you and you're learning how to learn, we got to have a lot of padding around both of us, right? So that's where my hack never wrong, sometimes more right comes in, which is that we reinforce the dog for all roughly correct approximations, but we reinforce bigger and better. And it typically is just a different kind of food. I don't give quote unquote jackpot or a different level or amount of food or a different level or level or amount of emotion. It's just basically, I might be training with kibble and also cooked chicken. So the cooked chicken is going to come when you do the thing exactly the way I want you to. And you're going to get kibble though, for every time that you try, every time that you give me effort. And it's magical to watch these dogs kind of go, Oh, this is a win-win for me. Like I always win some, it's just, sometimes I win better. And we're now helping you as a trainer increase your skill level while providing the dog this safety net of reinforcement so that they are always hanging in there. And that's just one of the hacks that I teach. And this theme comes up in all of my classes, but it comes up in this class big, big time, which is that excellence in training is just the basics done very, very well. And I think I first heard that kind of, I paraphrase that from Ken Ramirez, but excellence in training is just the basics done really well. 
excellence is training in training is not fancy stuff. It is, can you do the basics like a master? And I think in dog sports, we skip that part. We skip ahead because we want to get to the sexy stuff. We want to train weave poles. We want to train running contacts. And we don't get really clear in our heads about teaching reinforcers, teaching reinforcer cues being clear in our shaping procedures. There's a prerequisite course for this course. It's the prerequisite for all of my courses is the whole picture, which is my behavioral wellness course. I also have a behavioral wellness course on my own platform. It's a little bit more comprehensive. That is less sport focused. And I'll make sure that we link to both of those for you. But essentially why that prerequisite is there is so that you have this next common theme, which is wellness. I already said, Half of the categories that these dogs are in are wellness deficits. They're mentally or physically unwell. Sometimes they're just mentally unwell because their basic needs of exercise, enrichment, nutrition, and communication are not being met. And if we can meet those four needs and that communication piece happens to be what I just talked about, it's the excellence in training is the basics done well. It's that communication piece. If we don't have those things in place, we do not have wellness and now we have nothing. So when I work with these dogs, just like all the dogs that I work with, it is a holistic, big picture kind of thing. We're saying, where are we on our wellness front? Is this dog okay? Am I okay to even ask this dog to do anything for me? And then also, where are we on the human skills front? And what can we do for this dog to help them have the patience to allow this human learner to up their skills so that this whole partnership can look better? So shameless plug, the class is running right now, and I hope that you'll go grab it. It is the hardest class that I teach for me emotionally and mentally, and it's probably the hardest class that people take. So if you do grab it at bronze, I hope that you follow the gold spots because you're missing more than half the class if you don't. You're missing the deep dive that I do with these people if you don't. If you have one of these dogs that fits into one of these categories, I hope that you'll reach out. I hope you'll, you'll let me know. I hope you'll join the class and hang in there. There's hope. And now a few Patreon questions for you. The first one comes from Lindsay, who writes, my one-year-old lab will be returning from a three-month board and train program for hunting dogs in a few weeks and has learned a solid heel both on and off leash. I do not have a fenced yard, so most of his exercise is leashed walking and running around my neighborhood. How do I balance asking him to heal versus allowing him freedom to just be a dog? I plan to have him heal at the beginning and end of the off-leash walk and use a command like break to allow him to sniff on leash or off leash, as long as he's not pulling. Does that sound okay? Or do I need to use different equipment like a harness to help him understand healing versus not healing? And what about when we go on exciting trail and he's unable to not pull? Do I just manage the pulling with equipment? So Lindsay, lots of questions in here. And I think we might have some kind of fundamental differences in the way that we view um, maybe the word heal. For me, healing is a competition behavior. It's heads up. It is difficult for the dog to sustain for a long period of time. I think probably the dog has been trained kind of a generic stay next to me at your board and train, hopefully with positive reinforcement. And in that case, I would only do that when you need that high level control. The majority of your dog's exercise should be free, free movement, free sniffing, et cetera. And then that heel, that kind of highly specialized piece, I would use only when you need it. Like maybe you're in a store or you're walking past another dog or something like that. I would use it really sparingly and I would maintain it with positive reinforcement. And then anytime you don't want to maintain it, like anytime it's going to be too hard for that dog to do, yes, absolutely use some equipment to help you. 
All right, next one comes from Mariana who writes, any tips on getting the consistent eating a scatter behavior you mentioned a few times when talking about Rhea's behavior work? And since the pups eat raw, what do you use for scatters? So Mariana, my dogs do eat raw as their primary diet, but I use a lot of stuff for treats. A scatter is usually some kind of kibble, sometimes some zeewee peek in there, whatever I've got, whatever's dry. And then I teach them the consistent behavior by doing it. So I will cue scatter, pull over, throw food, and nothing is happening. And if they stay in the scatter, I will drop higher value things into the scatter as they're doing it. So if they're really intently snuffling, I'll drop some cheese or some chicken or something down in it so that they're actually finding better stuff. And I'm reinforcing that scatter. Next one's from Kristen. Kristen writes, I have a question about your wonderful response to the social media meme. Thanks for talking about this. So this wasn't a previous episode, everybody. I have a question. I'm trying to understand something. If your mistake led to Rhea's disengagement during the training session, why did you hold her accountable for or expect her to stay engaged? Is it because you expect her to ask her question in a different way other than disengaging? I hope this makes sense. I'm just trying to figure out what exactly she was accountable for in the circumstance. So if you haven't listened to that episode, everybody kind of back up and listen to it. It's about holding dogs accountable and it's in response to a meme. And Kristen, I don't think I have this on video. If I did, I would put it here for you to see. Essentially her disengagement was not due to, you know, a big fat deliberate error of mine. It was due to a really subtle mistake, a mistake I'm probably going to make again. I have taught her that she can choose to go to station Anytime she's confused, anytime she's not sure, and my quote unquote holding her accountable is simply just cueing her to go to station rather than going off and sniffing. I don't train dogs that disengage. If you disengage, I go get you, I remove you from what you're doing, and you will take a break. And I do that every single time. And that's about reinforcement. That's not really about me holding you accountable. That's about the fact behavior flows where reinforcement goes, right? So you just, you want behavior to behavior will reflect, excuse me, whatever's been reinforced. I can guarantee that sniffing the bush is reinforcing. And so I am going to actually make it stop. If I think that she is scared of something, stressed, whatever, like I'm going to make a different choice in that moment. So it is really subtle. And I think you are safer not to have these high expectations if you are not sure that your training is also going to meet expectations. But what she was accountable for in that circumstance was maintaining her engagement during a working scenario. Once you have engaged an opt-in, I am watching for your opt-outs, but your opt-out buys you time on the station. It does not buy you sniffing in the bush. It could also buy you a real break. That's how I work with my dogs. If you choose to check out, which almost, almost never happens because my training is good enough that it doesn't. And I don't put my dogs in hard situations for them. It almost, almost never happens. If it happens once in a blue moon, I will interrupt it. I will not allow it to be reinforced. I am not going to nag the dog back into work. I'm not going to pressure the dog back into work. I'm just going to put them on station and I'm going to reward them for being on station. I hope that clears it up for you, Kristen. And that'll be it for this week. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave me a review. If you'd like to support this podcast, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. You might even hear me answer your question on the show. For more content like the stuff you heard here, check out my online courses at cog-dog-classroom.teachable.com.